This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Christianity proves remarkably resilient to leftist attacks. Radicals and revolutionaries always make the same mistake. They all think that the church is going to roll over and die. Perhaps Joseph Stalin posed this error most succinctly when he asked, How many divisions does the Pope have? In his mind, it was the size of the army that made you strong. Nothing else mattered. The church had no army, except the spear-bearing Swiss guards. Therefore, it was weak and would soon die. Of course, today Stalin is dead, and the country that he led no longer exists. Vladimir Putin pretends to be some sort of modern-day Stalin. However, the Ukrainians are proving that Putin is more like Humpty Dumpty than the legendary Soviet dictator. During the COVID crisis, the leftists took power under the banner, Trust the Science. For them, religion and morality were weak because their tenets cannot be proven scientifically. However, science is only one avenue to one small fragment of the truth. Any truth that is not totally bound up in physical objects is out of its grasp. Mr. John Horvat came across a particularly interesting situation in which religion and science are allies. He discussed it in his essay, Science Says Suffering and the Cross Can Help Growth and Development. Everyone knows about those who have post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. This condition develops when a person witnesses or experiences a shocking, terrifying, or dangerous event. The traumatic experience triggers nervous disorders, which often require prolonged treatment. From a Christian perspective, this disorder is one of life's big crosses that people must bear with resignation and patience. The notion of the cross also helps the soul develop and increases a person's dependence on the love of God. The modern world hates this concept of the cross because it spoils the false narrative of a life without suffering. Modern man resents trauma since it disturbs a person's well-being. The cross must be avoided at all costs and pleasures must be pursued. It is a scourge that keeps people from being happy. Such a superficial outlook toward the cross is false. Dramatic and painful experiences are not always negative. They do not always jeopardize the health and happiness of individuals. Scientists studying the effects of great trauma more closely now find that heavy crosses can also transform individuals and improve their lives. It is time to take a second look at the cross. The new research calls the effect PTG, which stands for post-traumatic growth. Psychologists Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun researched this phenomenon in the mid-90s and gave it its name. Unlike others, they studied the long-term effects of traumatic suffering and uncovered surprising results. They found that certain people profited immensely from enduring trauma well. The two scientists identified five ways traumatic suffering developed positive benefits to those who embraced it. They noticed that such patients experienced 1. A wellspring of personal energy and strength. 2. A capacity to enter into deeper relationships. 3. A willingness to explore new possibilities. 4. 
a greater appreciation of life, and five, a spiritual or existential growth. These behavior changes were not fleeting or subject to fading. This growth resulted in changed worldviews and lasting transformations that surprised the sufferers. Another characteristic of PTG is that it does not deny the reality of suffering. Indeed, some people living with PTSD eventually experience PTG. Those who benefit from PTG will not necessarily be free of suffering, but will feel more fulfilled by their ability to deal with the crosses that they face. Those studying PTG are careful to point out that sufferers may not be happy in the sense of careless optimism. They can still suffer greatly, but their lives become more meaningful and focused. Dr. Tedeschi also believes that collective units and nations can gain from suffering and experience post-traumatic growth as a group. The greatest generation, for example, was born from the double trauma of the Depression and World War. Post-traumatic growth does not occur with just any person. Certainly, certain people are more likely to experience PTG than others. Although the numbers are disputed, some say as many as 70% of trauma sufferers experience some degree of PTG. Ariel Schwartz, a clinical psychologist and author of The Post-Traumatic Growth Guidebook, says an important component of traumatic recovery is, quote, to stay socially engaged, unquote, with family members and compassionate friends. Dr. Tedeschi adds clergy and healthcare personnel to the family and friends, since sometimes professional help is needed to spur the person to growth. The cross is easier to bear when the grief is shared with others. The trauma also forces the mind to reflect profoundly since it disrupts a person's core beliefs. People then learn lessons that can lead to lasting transformation. During times of trial, people start thinking about the big existential questions of meaning and purpose that can often lead to God. PTG can change a person's focus from self to others. It often results in a desire to serve and alleviate the suffering of others. The studies of PTG are important because they refute the modern myth that all suffering is harmful. Unfortunately, most studies do not go beyond the natural phenomenon of PTG. However, if vibrant growth from suffering can happen naturally— it only highlights how much more help is available through the supernatural ministry of the Church. The Church teaches that uniting one's suffering to those of Christ can have incalculable value for a person's conversion and spiritual healing. Those who suffer can experience a divine joy as the suffering becomes an occasion to grow closer to the crucified and glorified Redeemer. In this valley of tears, all people eventually suffer trauma, deaths of loved ones, war, natural disasters, or other misfortunes. Thus, science reinforces the Church's teaching that embracing the cross can lead to spiritual and personal growth. Indeed, 
those who practice the faith are best equipped to deal with trauma since they expect and find purpose in the cross. The church forms a visible society with social links that support people in times of trial. The church also provides the sacraments and other means of grace that fortify the soul during difficult times. Above all, sufferers can see our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and his sorrowful mother as supreme examples and models from which they can gain strength and courage. The Catholic family is the ideal atmosphere to provide a safety net and space for PTG. A Christian society further buttresses individuals by coming to their aid. In contrast, the present narcissist and individualist culture is least equipped to deal with the inevitable traumas of life since it sees all crosses with resentment and revolt. Thus, the cross becomes an instrument of sanctification and transformation. In its own way, even science supports this conclusion. The world that rejects the cross only brings more suffering on itself since it refuses to accept reality and condemns people to the hell of absurd fantasies. Another place in which the leftists discount the importance of religion is in the terms of one's biological sex. The transgender tyrants wrap themselves in pseudoscience and set out to remold society in their own image. They thought that the young would get in line and follow their banner. After all, the young understand the importance of inclusion. As for the church, it was an old and decrepit institution whose walls would crumble as soon as they pushed against it. Indeed, at first they enjoyed a good deal of success against some Protestant sects. However, not everyone gave way so easily. Some students actually pushed back. Mr. Edwin Benson discussed this unplanned victory in his essay, How Pennsylvania Students Surprised the Media by Demanding Restrooms Divided by Biological Sex. Collegeville, Pennsylvania is a suburb of Philadelphia, about 30 miles from the city limits. Like many such suburbs, it tends to be politically liberal and votes Democrat. The town is also the headquarters of the Perkiomen Valley School System, which also leans woke. Many were surprised to hear that the school board voted 5-4 to four to institute Policy 720, which requires students to use the bathroom assigned to their biological sex. A casual reader of the mainstream media may think that such a conservative decision would trigger a groundswell of support among students for their so-called transsexual classmates. After all, the media narrative claims that the mislabeled transgendered children undergo daily trauma because they can't use the school restrooms that meet their presumed orientation. So immense is the trauma that some mental health experts predict that many of these children will elect to end their own lives. Thus, the media are happy to broadcast stories where students support their supposedly transsexual classmates. The controversy over biological sex and transgender bathrooms began in 2018, when the Perkiomen Valley District followed the liberal pro-transgender path. 
Superintendent Barbara Russell spoke to the current interpretation of Title IX of the Federal Elementary and Secondary Education Act, under which, quote, gender identification is a protected class, unquote. In other words, the district would allow biological men to use women's restrooms based purely on that person's identification. The superintendent continued, this is our policy, unquote. Then, Tim Jagger's teenage daughter found a boy when she entered the girl's restroom. She complained to her father. Mr. Jagger relayed his concern to the board. A supportive board member proposed a new rule limiting restroom use to one's biological sex. However, on September 11, 2023, the school board signaled its agreement with the superintendent. They voted 5-4 to against the proposal. Then, the Perkiomen Valley students surprised the media and the rest of the woke world. Contradicting the media narrative, these students borrowed a tactic from the leftist playbook and walked out of their classrooms to show support for biological sex-assigned bathrooms. John Ott, a student who helped organize the walkout, takes a chivalric attitude toward the young women in his school. Quote, We wanted to protect them. They didn't want men in their bathroom, unquote. One of his fellow students, Victoria Rudolph, echoed John's sentiments. Quote, it's just uncomfortable seeing 19-year-old men or 18-year-old men in my bathroom, unquote. In light of the student's action and an avalanche of parent concern, the board reversed the superintendent's policy on October 2nd, also by a 5-4 to four vote. The brave action of the students in defense of traditional sexual identity and common sense unmasked the liberal establishment agenda. The debate over school curricula, library books, and gender policies has been framed as a fight between concerned yet unenlightened parents versus a progressive and more knowledgeable educational establishment. Both parties claim to represent the best interests of the children. However, as the case of the Perkiomen Valley District shows, the decision to impose this monstrous policy upon the children came to the top over the parents' objections. Administrators claimed to be acting on behalf of the children. However, they refused to take action when children complained that they felt threatened in their bathrooms. Only when the children walked out of class did the district decide to listen. Their courage made them stronger than the woke facilitators. Perhaps administrators feared that such tactics might be contagious and spread to other school districts. They quickly changed course. However, their initial refusal to listen indicates that they are not concerned for children, but rather obey an agenda that overrides the most basic rights of privacy and modesty. The welfare of the children must come first. Any pandering to gender ideology must be called out for what it is, child abuse. At about the same time that students in Pennsylvania were demanding safe restrooms, students, parents, and even teachers were fighting against the transgender tyrants in Iowa and Florida. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses similar stories in very different places in his essay, When Brave Christians React, Pronoun Tyrants Retreat. Americans can resist those who try to impose gender confusion on society. 
That is the conclusion flowing from two crucial decisions by judges in Iowa and Florida. In the Iowa case, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals found that the First Amendment protects students who refuse to use the so-called preferred pronouns at school. The Florida decision defended a Miami teacher fired in 2019 for a similar stand. Neither case is final. Higher courts will still have to speak. However, both are hopeful signs that some sanity is returning to courts that liberal activists often dominate. Marion, Iowa is in the eastern part of the state, near Cedar Rapids. It is the headquarters of the Linmar Community School District. The city's website presents a beautiful and growing community that looks like a refuge from America's major cities and their insanity. However, the local schools succumbed to the same waves of woke lunacy as many others. In August 2023, the district approved Code 504.13-R to regulate the treatment of those who claim to be transgender. The school board's code contains all the boilerplate language expected in postmodern America. Quote, these administrative regulations set forth the district's protocols that will be utilized to expeditiously address the needs of transgender students, gender-expansive students, non-binary, gender-nonconforming students, and students questioning their gender to ensure a safe, affirming, and healthy school environment where every student can learn effectively, unquote. The policy authorizes a so-called gender support plan, which any student can request. These have far-reaching implications. Quote, Any student in seventh grade or older will have priority of their support plan over their parent or guardian. Unquote. Translated into plain language, the policy says that the school board favors 12-year-olds' whims over their parents' legitimate concerns and God-given authority. The code requires that school personnel facilitate these transgender fictions. Quote, Staff members should always work with a student, regardless of gender identity, to address concerns regarding inclusion or safety and develop a plan for participation that addresses the student's concerns. Unquote. The code also regulates other students. Quote, Every student has the right to be addressed by a name and pronoun that corresponds to their gender identity, unquote. Although the code did not specify specific forbidden language or punishments, the school promised to defend that presumed right, even if the offender was another student. Predictably, the policy united controversy within the Lynn County community. Parents defending education brought suit against the district. On September 29, 2023, the court found that the system's attempt to impose these vague rules on students violates the First Amendment's protection of free speech. The court's reasoning was clear. It concluded that parents defending education will likely succeed in its claim that the policy, quote, is void for vagueness, unquote. Such vague policies do not, quote, provide adequate notice of the prescribed conduct and thus lend itself to arbitrary enforcement, unquote. Perhaps, the court continued, 
While a lesser standard of scrutiny is appropriate because of the public school setting, a proportionately greater level of scrutiny is required because the regulation reaches the exercise of free speech. Unquote. The president of Parents Defending Education, Nicole Neely, applauded the Eighth Circuit Court's decision. However, her statement contained a badly needed note of caution and guarded optimism. Quote, Yet these policies remain on the books in far too many districts across the country. Parental exclusion policies are a loser in the court of public opinion, and I have no doubt they will eventually be struck down in the court of law as well. Unquote. Over 1,500 miles separate Miami, Florida from Marion, Iowa. Their local cultures could hardly be more distant. However, schools that inject themselves into the transsexual circus are common to both. On December 19, 2019, Yojari Mundare was a science teacher at Miami-Dade's Jose Di Diego Middle School. That day, she got into a dispute with one of her students, identified in court documents only as Pat. An official court document describes the episode. Quote, The incident at issue started when Mundare reprimanded Pat and another student for engaging in routine classroom horseplay. In doing so, Mundare told Pat to stop playing rough with the boys. It is undisputed that Pat is a biological female and that she is so identified in the school records. Until December 20, 2019, Mundari had no reason to think that Pat was not the girl she objectively appeared to be. Soon after being reprimanded, Pat asked to speak privately with Mundari, and the two stepped away from the other students for that purpose. Pat then revealed to Mundari that she is transgender and now identifies as a male. Pat told Mundari that henceforth she wanted Mundari to address her using masculine pronouns. Mundari explained that she could not do that due to her Christian beliefs. Pat's response was, I think God made a mistake. Pat's statement contradicts the Orthodox Christian belief that God is inerrant and infallible. Regardless, she was criticizing God, or more likely mocking the teacher's faith. Madari replied, I am a Christian, and my God makes no mistakes. The Miami-Dade schools terminated the teacher's employment on June 4, 2020. On December 12, 2022, the Commissioner of Education charged her with, quote, violating the principles of professional conduct, failing to make reasonable efforts to protect a student from conditions harmful to learning and or to the student's mental and or physical health and or safety, and failing to take reasonable precautions to distinguish between personal views and those of the educational institution, unquote. On May 5, 2023, the commissioner added a fourth charge, quote, having been found guilty of personal conduct which seriously reduces the teacher's effectiveness as an employee of the school board. Unquote. On October 2, 2023, Florida Administrative Law Judge John Van Lanningham recommended that Mundari be reinstated. According to Florida law, the state's Educational Practices Commission would have to do the actual reinstatement. But this is an essential first step in the teacher's fight to get back a job she should never have lost. 
Perhaps even more important is the language that Judge Van Lanningham used to justify his decision. Quote, Advocates of transgenderism can be as doctrinaire as religious zealots these days. Adhering to the traditional view that gender is biologically determined can get a person excommunicated from a job in this instance. Indeed, a reasonable argument can be made that transgenderism is fast becoming, if it has not already become, a kind of state-sponsored religion. Bundari's refusal to convert to this new secular faith cost her dearly. Unquote. While this result is encouraging, this case is far from over. The commission could appeal it to the Florida court system and perhaps to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, Judge Van Lanningham stated a case that pertains to many people facing the leftist demands generally and transgender tyranny in particular. Because of their unique position, teachers are on the front line of this battle, and all too many of them are on the other side. However, the Florida and Iowa cases show this war is not lost. Both Iowa and Florida have passed new laws acknowledging the parents' right in this critical area. The words of Winston Churchill accurately describe the current state of resistance to transgender tyranny. Now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. In such a war, courage and a reliance on our Lord and Our Lady's protection are the only reliable weapons. Anyone who tries to figure out the source of the leftist insanity will find the answer in America's colleges and universities. Again, the leftist fortresses look impregnable. However, even the colleges are facing challenges that they never expected. Alumni are deciding not to contribute to old schools that have become indoctrination centers. Not only that, but young people are deciding that they do not want to waste four years spending untold thousands of dollars to listen to lies, even if those lies pretend to be intellectual activity. Mr. Benson discussed this dilemma in his essay, Why Are So Many Young People Rejecting College Education? Many of today's young people decide that a college education is not worth the time and treasure it costs. For previous generations, this might be something of a surprise, although it shouldn't be. Colleges have spent the first quarter of the 21st century making their product, the degrees they award, more expensive and less valuable. Perhaps the real surprise should be that it took so long to realize that the transaction between colleges and students is such a bad deal. A recent article in the New York Times Magazine describes the situation well. It indicates that 2009 may have been the high-water mark for America's universities. That year, 70% of high school graduates matriculated immediately after graduation. At the same time, 74% of young adults said that a college education was very important. As of 2023, the percentage of young people going straight to college has declined to 62%, a decline of 8 points. This decline is troubling, but hardly indicates that the bottom has fallen out. 
Perhaps more important is that only 41% of today's young adults affirm the importance of a college education. One explanation for this rapid decline of support for America's colleges is economic. The cost-benefit calculation has shifted over the past few decades. The cost side of the equation is especially concerning. According to the College Board, tuition and fees at state-supported four-year schools rose from $4,870 in the 1992-93 academic year to $10,940 in 2022-2023. Prices at private schools went from $21,860 to $39,400 over the same period. In its part, the New York Times reports that the College Board's figures are on the low side. Quote, Today, the average total cost of attending a private college, including living expenses, is about $58,000 a year. At the University of Michigan, a public university, tuition, fees, and expenses for out-of-state juniors and seniors total more than $80,000 a year. Unquote. Some might attribute those increases to inflation. However, the College Board factored that into their figures. The amounts cited reflect increases measured in real dollars. These increases led to an expansion in student loans, whose interest rates add significantly to the total cost. The benefit side of the calculation is no less dire. The New York Times Magazine spent considerable space describing the conclusions of economic researchers working for the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis. They developed an index called the College Wealth Premium. It attempts to determine the effect that a college education has on the wealth that graduates eventually acquire. The economists found that people who graduated from college before 1980 accumulated two to three times as much wealth as their peers with only a high school diploma. However, those who graduated after 1980 were only marginally better off than high school graduates. Moreover, the difference will continue to be small as they age. After the expense of getting a master's degree or doctorate, the outlook for those with graduate degrees was even worse. Quote, Among families whose head is of any race or ethnicity, born in the 1980s and holding a postgraduate degree, the wealth premium is zero. Unquote. There are also reasons for the decline in the value of a college education that have little to do with economics. The colleges lost their sense of the purpose of an education. St. Thomas Aquinas is credited with stating one purpose of education. Quote, the greatest kindness one can render to any man consists in leading him from error to truth. Unquote. This magnificent statement dovetails nicely with one from the pagan philosopher Plato. Quote, the purpose of education is to give to the body and to the soul all the beauty and perfection of which they are capable. Unquote. Holy Mother Church created the university during the medieval period to promote the three great transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. 
Until recently, that tradition was honored, even if seldom realized. A mere 12 years ago, the famous Harvard developmental psychologist Howard Gardner wrote a book reflecting these ancient and essential ideas. The Harvard Gazette enthused. The ever-prolific Gardner remains upbeat in his latest book, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty Reframed, a contemporary look at how our conceptions of these three virtues have shifted over time. Yet, Gardner insists, these virtues remain the cultural bedrock of our existence, even in light of the postmodern skepticism and side effects of technological advances on our attention spans and ways of thinking. Unquote. From a Catholic perspective, there are multiple flaws in Dr. Gardner's analysis, but he was at least searching in the right direction. Today's academics have abandoned the effort altogether. The modern university no longer helps students find the truth mainly because it denies that objective truth exists. The search for truth requires humility. Today, a combination of arrogance and pride leads too many professors to substitute their favorite notions. They wrap this jumble in the jargon of pseudo-intellectualism and peddle that unholy mess to their students. Today, the college mantra is diversity, equity, and inclusion or DEI. If truth is an endangered species, goodness is extinct. At least, students might find some discussion about the nature of truth. But today's universities reject moral goodness as naive and passé. Any person who openly embraces it will likely face ridicule or even intimidation. Beauty fares little better. Art classes create abstract so-called statement pieces. Modern university buildings range from brutalist nightmares to absurd flights of fancy to Soviet-style prison blocks. Many students and professors alter their appearance to shock and appall, if they care at all. In a letter to his wife Abigail, dated May 12, 1780, the soon-to-be second president of the United States, John Adams, made a profound statement. Quote, I must study politics and war, that our sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. Our sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history and naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain, unquote. Here Mr. Adams acknowledges a hierarchy of learning. Studying practical matters may be necessary, but such disciplines are only a beginning. Then come those pursuits that combine academic theories with utility. Finally, come those arts that exist only in stable and elevated societies. Many readers might wish that the Unitarian Mr. Adams had made a place for the things of God. Even so, the concept of a hierarchy of learning is still a noble one. Until the day before yesterday, such progression was primarily the province of the university. When the colleges abandoned it, students perceived that something was wrong, and now they are losing interest. This concludes... 
Christianity proves remarkably resilient to leftist attacks. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our programs in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.